Uh, let's take our copies of uh, God's Word, and I invite you to turn once again to the Gospel of Luke, uh, the very last chapter, chapter 24, Luke 24, verses 13 through 35 this morning. So turning there, I want to, uh, to ask you a question and get you thinking. Um, say you can travel back in time. If you could travel back in time to witness any event in biblical history, which event would you travel back in time to see? Some of you might say, I'd like to go all the way back to the beginning and see God bring creation into being by the word of his power. Maybe, maybe some of you would say, well, how about the Exodus? To see the Israelites pass through the divided waters on dry land. Maybe some fam- famous Bible story like David and Goliath or Daniel and the lion's den. And then, of course, you have the whole life and ministry of Jesus to consider. Birth of Christ, baptism of Jesus, his healing ministry of enabling the lame to walk and the blind to see, feeding the 5,000, walking on the water. Um, So which event would you want to travel back in time to see? I'm not sure myself, but uh, one thing that would be a top contender for me is I would like to travel back in time to walk alongside of Jesus and these two disciples on the road to Emmaus and listen to Jesus open up the scriptures to these two disciples and show them how it really is all about him and how all of the scriptures point to Jesus and his suffering and his glory. Today we have the privilege of listening into some of that conversation as Luke tells us the story in Luke chapter 24. Before we read it together, let's, let's pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, you have, uh, you've taught us in your word that your word is useful to us. It's useful uh, for instruction that brings understanding for rebuke that brings correction uh, and conviction, and for correction that does bring healing, and for training that equips us to follow our Savior Jesus Christ. And Lord Jesus, as your word is open before us today, we, we pray that by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that our hearts would burn within us, And that we would not be those who are slow to understand, but by your help, quick to believe all that you would say and teach us today. Leave us uh, rejoicing today as we depart from uh, the service. May we see you in all of your glory as you are revealed in this text. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Luke 24, uh, beginning in verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. Things that had happened the last few days pertaining to Jesus in Jerusalem. 
While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going farther. But they urged him strongly saying, Stay with us for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread And blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Well, this story is unique to Luke. It's not found in the other three Gospels. In terms of eyewitness testimony to the resurrection, it adds yet another account of people who saw the risen Christ. They, they walked with him, they talked with him, they even shared a meal with him. But Luke isn't simply recounting history in order to pile up the testimony for the historicity of the resurrection. Remember, Luke is writing to his friend Theophilus. And in this story, as Luke is coming to the end of writing his gospel, 
think Luke wants Theophilus to know how it is that an individual comes to a living faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the story of these two disciples is actually the Christian story. They're on this journey. They're confused and disoriented, perplexed. But then this stranger joins them on their journey and they have no idea who it is. And while they're talking along the way, they're brought from confusion through instruction and illumination to faith. And that faith, as we'll see at the end, leads to corporate celebration. And it's this pattern that in some way marks every Christian's story. Confusion, instruction, illumination, celebration. And Luke wants this to be written into the life story of Theophilus. A man who was confused. You remember, unsure about the things that he had been taught concerning this Jesus of Nazareth. But through instruction in the scriptures, in the gospel that Luke is writing, Luke's longing is for the lights to come on in Theophilus's life, that he might see who Jesus truly is and what Jesus has truly done in his life and in his death and in his resurrection, that he might be brought along with other believers to celebrate the reality of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And so let's, uh, let's, let's join these two disciples on their journey. Luke brings us into the encounter on the road to Emmaus. Now we know who one of the disciples was, Cleopas. Perhaps it's the same individual who's talked about in John uh, 19. And if that's the case, then we have here actually a relative of the Lord Jesus himself. We don't know who the second disciple is. Usually this assumption is it's another, uh, another man, but I'm not quite sure why we assume that. Could very well be Cleopas' wife. It could be a son or a daughter. We simply don't know. But as they make their way to Emmaus, they are, they're brought, if I could put it this way, onto a much more wonderful journey of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that leads to unending Rejoicing and celebration. But notice where this journey begins. This journey begins with confusion. They're unsure about what has been happening. And they're perplexed about things that they have been hearing. So when this stranger engages them. Now, you know, we have to remember, we know more than they do at this point. We know the identity of this stranger, but they don't have a clue. And so this stranger approaches them and engages them in conversation in verse 17 and asks them, what what, what is this conversation that the two of you have going? And it brings them to a standstill. And they stand there looking sad. What, What do you mean? Are you the only person in all of Jerusalem who has no idea what has taken place in these last days regarding Jesus of Nazareth? And so they're, they're, they're standing there sad. They, the death of Jesus has devastated these disciples. They believe that their hopes had been crushed at Calvary. 
So they're sad, but they're not only sad, they're, they're confused because Jesus died. And yet at the same time, some women from among the band of the disciples of which they were a part had gone to the tomb earlier that morning and found the tomb empty. They didn't know what to make of it. They didn't have a category for this. They didn't know what was going on. And so Jesus engages these confused travelers. And then notice what happens. I, I love this. Without them really noticing, notice what happens to them. He, he appears as a total stranger that they don't recognize at the beginning of the story here. Next, he accompanies them as an inquirer who asks them questions to draw out from them what they really believe about Jesus. And then notice the inquirer becomes their teacher. Don't you remember this in your Bible? Don't you remember that this was foreordained, spoken of, predicted by the prophets, that this is all according to a divine plan? <clears throat> and then... Uh, they're so drawn to this stranger, inquirer, teacher, that when they reach, they reach their destination in Emmaus, they're so captivated by this individual, they say to him, look, at the sun is setting. Why don't, why don't you come and be our guest for, for a night? And you get back on your travels tomorrow. And so he becomes their guest, but that's, the story doesn't end there either, because the guest becomes the host, and we find it's Jesus who is breaking the bread and saying the prayer of blessing and distributing the food. You see what's going on here? He's, he's moved from stranger to inquirer to teacher to guest to host. He's the one leading this meal. And I think without them being able to see what Luke helps us to see, we see that they have been brought from their place of confusion to a knowledge and faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. They share this meal with Jesus and then they go on to join with others who are rejoicing in the fact that the Savior they followed has risen from the dead. That's what this story is all about, dear friends. It's all about how these two people then and how anybody today can be brought to a living faith in a living Savior. Sometimes, sometimes it's only when someone has been brought to faith in Christ that they begin to understand what it is that's been happening to them in, in recent days and weeks and maybe months and perhaps in some cases even years that Jesus has pursued them, that Jesus has asked them questions, led them to ask questions that they've never asked before, and that Jesus has been leading them to understand the scriptures, and eventually they discover on the other side of things that Jesus has come to them in order that they might know him and trust and believe in him. All of this happens because Jesus meets their confusion with his instruction. See, I think there's such an important lesson there that we, we should just pause and reflect upon that for a moment. If, if we want to see people brought by God from a place of confusion and uncertainty to a place of clarity and faith, what is the means that Jesus employs? 
What does Jesus rely upon to bring these confused individuals to a place of faith in the risen Christ? He uses the scriptures. He takes them to the Bible. Now, now this journey was, uh, as we read at the beginning of our, of our story here, it's about seven miles from, from Jerusalem to Emmaus. We don't know exactly where Jesus joined them on their trek, but let's, let's just assume he, uh, he joined them early on in their travels. Walking at a leisurely pace, we can say that Jesus spent somewhere around two hours with these two individuals. And so he spent two hours with them, instructing them in the truth of the gospel. And notice where he begins. He begins by finding out where they are. That's another important lesson for us. He doesn't just back up a truckload of gospel information and dump it into their laps with no regard for their their experience, their understanding, or their misunderstanding. He begins by asking them questions which reveal what they do understand and what they don't understand. I think that's another important lesson for us. And they're unsure about a lot of things. That's clear. They've experienced these inexplicable things. They've heard that Jesus has been raised from the dead, but, but they can't take that in. So they're in this state of utter confusion. I think it's just so... It's so interesting what Jesus does here. If I were Jesus, I know what I'd do at this point. I'd say, uh, surprise! (laughs) It's me! I'm alive! But that's not what Jesus does. Instead, while these disciples are kept in some way from realizing who it is that they're speaking to, come to why that is the case, I think, in a few minutes... Jesus takes them to the scriptures. He opens the scriptures up to them to to show them. Don't you see that all of these things that have been happening in these last few days fulfill exactly what was spoken of by the prophets? Haven't you understood your Bible yet and seen that all of this is actually according to God's definite plan of salvation for his people? And so Luke says that he took them to Moses and the prophets. And and during the two hours or however long it was, he took them through all the scriptures and pointed them in the scriptures to God's promise to bring salvation to lost sinners through the suffering and glory of his son. Now, of course, they didn't have Bibles. They didn't have pocket Bibles that they could whip out and, and look at together. They didn't have cell phones with Bible apps that they could pull up. But these individuals, they knew their Bibles because they had been taught Bible from their youth. And so they could bring these texts to mind and discuss them with one another. Where do you think Jesus took them? You know, you've got two hours. Where, where, where do you take them? I'd like to think surely he began with Genesis 3.15. The mother of all gospel promises. You know that, that promise that in the garden God gave to Adam and Eve. That the 
there would be this ongoing conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, but this conflict would culminate in a conflict between the seed of the woman and the serpent himself. Telling us, of course, that throughout history there will be this ongoing conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. Until it reaches a climax and the the seed of the woman steps onto the battlefield and crushes the head of the serpent even as his heel is bruised. Now what does that tell you? It tells you that victory over Satan, salvation for the people of God, comes at the cost of the bruising of the seed of the woman. Did he take them to Genesis 22 and the story of Abraham and Isaac? And where is the lamb for the sacrifice? And the Lord provides a substitute so that Isaac can be saved. Surely he took them to In some way, the story of the Exodus, don't you remember when our people were redeemed out of bondage and slavery in Egypt? It was because of the sacrifice of the Passover lamb and the lamb's blood spread over the doorpost, redemption through blood sacrifice. And don't you remember how God had said to us in the Old Testament, you've You've, you know, you've just come from the temple where day after day after day, blood sacrifices are brought into the temple, whether it's a lamb or a goat or a, a bull. It has been presented in sacrifice as a substitute for the sins of the people. And don't you understand the message that if those sacrifices are being repeated day after day, week after week, month after month, that none of those sacrifices could possibly be the once for all sacrifice that takes away the sins of the people of God. Don't you remember those amazing words of Isaiah? Surely he took them to a passage like Isaiah 53. Where Isaiah said that he would would be the one who, the savior of God's people would be one who is like a lamb taken away to be slaughtered. And like a sheep who, who before whose shearers is silent. He would be bruised and crushed and afflicted. And through his affliction, he would win a victory and then share the blessings of his blood-bought purchases with his people, shutting the mouths of kings. And we go on and on and on with different passages. But you can imagine Jesus doing this. Helping them to see that this was actually the message of the whole Bible. Now, let me just say one thing here. It's not as though, this is not what Luke is saying in Luke 24. That you've got a select passage here and a select passage there. And a select passage in the Old Testament that's about Jesus. Kind of like what I just did. I needed to give you some examples. What Luke is actually saying is Jesus considered all of Moses, the prophets, and the writings, which is the Hebrew division of the Old Testament, and he showed them how all of those things were all about Jesus, all about the Christ's suffering and glory. Every page is about him, points to him. And so... This is what Jesus is getting them to understand. But they'd never seen it. They'd missed the message of the whole Bible. Now their Bibles were what consisted of Genesis to Malachi. Genesis to Malachi is about Jesus. But they'd missed it. 
And what we need to face this morning, dear friends, is that's very possible. That is very possible, you know, to to know the Bible, but miss the message of the Bible. To know not just Genesis to Malachi, but to know Genesis to Revelation, what each of those books has to say, and yet miss the unifying message that brings them all together. You, you don't have to be a, a card-carrying atheist to miss the message of the Bible. Remember, these are two professed followers of Jesus during his ministry. Belong to the band of disciples. You don't have to be a skeptic to miss the message of the Bible. You could be a Presbyterian and miss the message of the Bible. You could be a Baptist or a Methodist or an Anglican and miss the message of the Bible. And these two had missed the point. And Jesus had come marvelously to help them to see this as he, as he opened the scriptures to them. You know, one of the reasons I'd like to go back in time to, to witness this, because I think, I mean, what, a great, what a great Bible study leader Jesus must make. <laughs> Can you imagine it? Fill in some of the conversation along the way. You know, Jesus is reminding them of a scripture passage, and Cleopas says, well, you know, I always, I always thought of this passage like this. And, and Jesus saying, well, let's stick to the text. What does it actually say? Do you know it's interesting? This is, this is what's going to lead us to the third thing. You could, you could actually know everything that Jesus communicated to these disciples on the road to Emmaus about the message of Scripture, what Scripture is all about, and the lights could still be out. Right? Something could still be missing. See, these two, they needed more than just head knowledge and instruction. They needed illumination. And that's what Luke is also helping us to understand in this story. We need illumination to drive the, away the confusion, to bring us to clarity and faith in Jesus Christ. And the great thing is, of course, these two experience it. As Jesus opened up to them the scriptures, the, the lights come on. And again, they don't even know it's happening to them, but it's happening to them. And actually, it's only after it's happened to them that they realize what has happened to them. Right? So they're coming to their destination in Emmaus. The sun is setting and the stranger, still a stranger to them, acted as if he was going on a little farther. But they've been so captivated by this man's words that they plead with him to stay the night as, as their guest. So he goes with them, and while they share a meal, Jesus took bread, and he broke it, and he blessed it, and he gave it to them, and their eyes were opened. And the lights came on, and they began to see who Jesus really was. It's a lesson about illumination that Luke is wanting to teach us here, I think. Now, Luke doesn't dwell on this. He just tells us that after this, Jesus vanished. He was gone. Um, and then notice that that's when they begin to see what was happening all along. It, it all begins to fit together. They, they say to each other, you remember what he said? 
Well, what did he say? <laughs> One of the things he said to them was, uh, oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe. Again, imagine your Bible study leader saying, you know, Cleopas, what your problem is? You're stupid. <laughs> You're foolish. You're slow to understand. Maybe you find yourself speaking on behalf of Cleopas here saying, but, but this is so confusing. I think Jesus would say it's not confusing. This is as plain as plain can be. It's not confusing. You're confused. But then the penny drops, the light comes on, and they look at each other. And isn't it interesting that they both had the same experience? They're able to look at each other and say, were not our hearts burning within us as he opened the scriptures to us on the way? I think that's one of the great signs of God's grace as he works illumination into our lives. At last we see and we're no longer those who are slow of heart to understand, but we are, by the grace of God, those who have burning hearts who want to know and understand who Jesus is. I think John Wesley is an illustration of this. Maybe you're familiar with this story. Now, okay, remember, John Wesley is is a minister of the gospel in, in this story, okay? So he's, he's on his way to the southern state of Georgia in 1735, writing these words as an Anglican minister in his journal. He wrote, uh, My chief motive in going to Georgia is the hope of saving my own soul. I hope to learn the true sense of the gospel by preaching it to the heathen. Maybe you've heard the term missional dating, which is a bad idea, by the way, dating someone with the hopes of them being converted. Well, here's Wesley engaging in missional missions. He's going on in the mission field with the hope that he'll be converted in the process. A few years later, he says in his journal, if it be said about me, obviously, John, you're a man of faith. I answer, so have the devil's faith. I want that faith that none can have without knowing that he has it. Isn't that what you want? Isn't that the kind of faith that you want? Not a mere conjecture, not merely a, 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 some sort of fleeting feeling, but an assurance that Jesus is who he says he is and Jesus is my Savior. Fast forward a few years, three years later in 1738, on May 24th, John Wesley wrote th these words in his journal. In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society at Aldersgate Street in London where someone was reading from Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans. And about a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, listen to these words, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, in Christ alone for my salvation. John Wesley then was ushered by his friends to the house of Charles Wesley, his brother. And uh, Charles Wesley writes in his journal that when John came to his house at night, he said, Charles, I believe. 
We'll sing a hymn of praise at the end here, one of Charles Wesley's hymns. Now, may may not happen to us in such a dramatic way, but you see, the heart strangely warmed. That is, I think, a sign that the light has been turned on and you've come to see it really is all about Jesus. And so these two, they're brought out of their confusion through instruction and illumination. But that's not the end of the story. This story ends with a party. That's, that's really what's going on here. There is a great celebration at the end of this story. Now, the two realize after Jesus has gone from them what they have to do. There's no way that we can keep what has just happened to us to ourselves. So, after traveling the seven miles from Jerusalem to Emmaus, that very hour they strap their sandals back on and they run back to Jerusalem. Now, I think this is meant to, it's an amusing picture. Imagine these guys, Whatever, whoever they are, Cleopas and his wife, son and daughter, fellow disciple, they make their way back to Jerusalem and you picture them in your mind's eye huffing and puffing as they get to the city of Jerusalem and going to one of the houses of the disciples hoping to connect with some of them and it happens to be that all of the disciples have gathered in this home. And as they're approaching the house, they're looking at each other. What's that, what's that noise we hear? Why does it sound like there's singing going on in there? Why does it sound like people are dancing? You know that Orthodox Jews danced, I hope. So they, they go inside and they're so excited, of course, that they start blurting out. You guys have to hear what we have to say. That the Lord Jesus is risen. He met with us on the road. He opened the scriptures to us. They wanted to share all of this information, but one of the disciples inside the house comes over and places his hands on Cleopas' shoulder and says, My brother, we already know. The Lord Jesus is risen from the dead. Peter has already seen him. Come on in and join in the celebration. And so, dear friends, here is the Christian story brought out of confusion and uncertainty to a true and living faith in Jesus through instruction and Holy Spirit illumination. And when we come to see that Jesus is not a tragically dead man, but a victorious, living, reigning Savior who has fulfilled all that was spoken and promised by the prophets, that he suffered for our sins and has risen again from the dead, We celebrate, we rejoice because sin has been atoned for. Death has been conquered. Satan has been defeated. And the celebration is never, ever going to end. And so, dear friends, I have two questions I want to ask as as we wrap all of this up. One for Christians, one for non-Christians. The question I have for, for those of you who are Trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ is, is simply this. Is, is, your, is your Christian life marked by celebration? Rejoicing in Jesus with the fellowship of the saints? You know, I know, I know all of us, all of us here today have burdens weighing down upon us. 
cares and concerns of this world, things that ought to discourage us, things that weigh us down, difficult things. But all I want to say to you today, dear brother and dear sister, is would you see afresh and see anew all that Jesus has done for you and all that Jesus by his sacrifice upon Calvary has won for you, all that he has in store for you, all that is yours in the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you, would you lift up your eyes from the troubles of this life and realize afresh who you are in Jesus Christ and what you have in him? And I think when we have that proper perspective, we will be able to say that despite what's going on in our lives, there is real cause for celebration. And then I want to say this to to the non-Christian, ask you this question. Consider this an invitation. We send out invitations when we're about to have a have a party. Consider this your formal invitation. Will you, will you join in on the celebration? The celebration of having a burning heart because you've discovered, perhaps without even realizing what was happening to you at the time, that it really is all about Jesus. And what a celebration. Sin is paid for. Death is defeated. Satan is conquered. Heaven is open. Eternal life is before us. In the presence of Jesus, presence of God, presence of God's people for all eternity in a new heavens and a new earth where there is no sin, no sickness, no death, no reason for sorrow. What other cause, what greater cause could there be for celebration? And so, dear friend, I want to Extend an invitation to you today. If you haven't already, won't you come in and join the celebration? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace to us in our Savior Jesus Christ. And we pray by the ministry of the Holy Spirit that each of us here might indeed have hearts that burn within us as we hear of who Jesus is and what Jesus Christ has done. And lead us, Lord, into rejoicing and celebration because of all that our Savior has won for us. And Lord, we look forward to the unending celebration and rejoicing that awaits the people of God. But we pray, even now in this life, that our lives corporately and our lives individually would be marked by joyful celebration because Jesus Christ has died. And Jesus Christ has risen again from the dead. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.